you have your Bibles, go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 7. We are text for this morning. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of our God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, I pray that it would be clear to us that, that Father, we would believe this morning uh, that your word is for our good. That, Father, your word is food for our lives. And, that, Father, that uh, you are speaking to us this morning through these words. And, Father, lastly, that your word is understandable. That you're not trying to hide things from us. Father, your word is understandable. And Father, your word is useful for a life of godliness that you've called us to. Father, may we believe that you have sovereignly chosen these words for us this morning. And Father, that you would speak into our hearts your truths in a way that only you can. And Father, may I move out of the way so that your word can speak to us this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we begin to walk step by step now through 1 Timothy, I want to very quickly take us back to Genesis. I want to read for us Genesis chapter 3 and just verses 4 through 6 as I kind of set this up for us to begin talking through and working through 1 Timothy in the first seven verses here this morning. From the garden, Genesis 3, verse 4 through 6, it says this, But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what does she do? She eats of the tree. Now, at the crux of the humanly problem Our humanly problem is the desire not for God's grace, but the desire to live by the law. And the law as we would define it. I would say at the crux of our problem, of humans' problem, our sinful nature, is the desire not to be in God's presence by His grace, where He gets all the glory, but instead is the desire to live by the law where we can get credit. And often, if not all the time, that law as we would define it. I want to remind you back as we worked through uh, Gospel and Kingdom, what happens in the garden is that Adam and Eve desired what we termed as moral legislative autonomy. That's a fancy way of saying they wanted to decide what was right and wrong for themselves. That was the act of eating from the tree 
was the idea that they could define what was good and what was evil. They wanted to be like God in defining what is good and what is evil. And what, so when we think of moral, so legislation, like the laws concerning moralism and what is right and what is wrong, and then autonomy means like on their own, apart from God, they're separate, they want to do this themselves. And the text very clearly says that they will be like God. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that they would be God, or they would be like God in its totality, but they would be like God knowing what? Good and evil. They would be like God trying to define for themselves what is good and what is evil. I mean, what is the problem in our culture today? Well, you got this person defining this as good, and this person defines this as good, and this person defines this as evil, and this person defines this as evil. When God's Word clearly lays out for us what is good and what is evil. So we see this even practically today. We even see this in our own hearts, or even in our own marriages or our own relationships, where one person defines something as good, another person defines that as evil. It's this autonomy as opposed to submission to God's moral legislation. Now the thinking, I think, is this. If we can define the law, which is what Adam and Eve wanted to do. They wanted to define the law, and by implication that means they wanted to live the law as opposed to living underneath God's grace. I hope you see the garden was God's grace. It was They were living in unmerited favor from God while they were in the garden, right? Unhindered relationship, everything that they needed, all that they had, all that they needed was there for their provision. But who gets the glory for that if they didn't earn it? God does. It was God's grace to Adam and Eve. But what do they choose? They choose to go the way of the law. And the thinking here, I, I think, is if we can define the law, then we can obey the law. And if we can obey the law, then we can be praiseworthy. And if we can be praiseworthy, then we can be God, which is the crux of all of our hearts. Let me say that again. I think what Adam and Eve were thinking here is that if we can define the law, the knowledge of good and evil, moral legislative autonomy, then we can obey the law. So I can define the law by my terms, then I can obey the law, right? Because I'm, I'm never going to define the law in such a way that I can't obey it. That would be counterproductive. But God defines the law in a way that we cannot obey it. But the thinking here is if we can define the law, then we can obey the law. And if we can obey the law, then we can be praiseworthy. And if we can be praiseworthy, then we can be God. And at the crux of all of our hearts, we desire to be God. I struggle with wanting to be God. We all struggle with that. So Adam and Eve choose to define the law themselves. And so choosing, and in that choosing, they leave behind the grace of of the garden that was theirs. The grace of the garden was unhindered, unhindered total dependence and reliance on God. What would it be like to have a heart that knew that it was totally dependent on God and it was pleased to dwell in that knowing? Right? For us, we don't want the, the thought of my heart being utterly dependent on God means that I can't do it. But here Adam and Eve are in this relationship with God where they are in total dependence. And then what happens is the serpent comes along, tempts them and says, No, I don't know that that's a good place for your heart to be. But just track with me for a second. The grace of the garden was this, un, this total dependence on God. It was a heart that beat for God, it was a heart loving God with pure motives. That was the way God made man. He was made this way. He was made to live in total dependence of God in a life that God would provide for him. Now when we think of grace, what they left behind in choosing the law, and I just want us to reflect for just a moment and the, the difficulties of grace and the difficulties of 
living by the law. And today, I think when we think of grace, when we think of living by grace versus living by the law, we think, oh, well, grace is easy, right? Grace, this living grace is, is easy. Now, if, uh, if you're th- saying in your mind, well, no, I don't think grace is easy, uh, then my question would be, uh, how much energy and effort do you put into running the race? Right? Paul says, I beat my flesh. Right? How much are you beating your flesh? Because that's probably uh, indicative of how easy you think grace is. So if you beat, the harder you beat your flesh, the probably the harder you understand it is to live in grace. But the less you beat your flesh, it's probably the easier you think the grace of life. At least, at least it seems to be more carefree. So just, just track me for a second. I think we think oftentimes that grace is, is easy and, and oh, the law is hard. Now, I, I'm making some generalizations here, but just track with me for a second. I would argue, I think, that the law, in some ways, is easier. And then we must ask the question, I ask the question to myself, why? Why is the law easier, at least in some perspective? Why is the law easier? It's easier not because the goal is satisfying God, ultimately. I think this is the thing we have to begin with. When it comes to when we want to live by the law, legalism, that it's not ultimately to satisfy God. The goal is ultimately to make ourselves feel good before God. So that's the, the, so the, that's the premise that we have. We're so fooled when we think, I can earn my favor and stand before God via the law. Right? That's, and we think, okay, well that's for God and that's for His glory. Whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. If it's us earning our way into God's presence, then it's about us feeling good about being able to earn our way into God's presence. So just begin there with me. The law is easy. Why? Because it's not ultimately about satisfying God. It's ultimately about making ourselves feel good. And if the goal, but if the goal is satisfying God, then grace is much easier. Grace is much easier. But if the goal is to make ourselves feel better, then the law is much easier. Let me repeat that again. If the goal is satisfying God, then grace is much easier. But if the goal is to make ourselves feel better, feel good about ourselves, feel praiseworthy, then the law is much easier. Particularly if we will always gravitate towards redefining the law. Because then we can define the law in such a way that we can accomplish the law in order to bring about satisfaction and praiseworthiness of our own lives. Just like the garden, what happens in the garden? They want to redefine the law. They want to define the law for themselves. And by implication, they're choosing to live the law. But just like the garden, pursuit of self-justification through the law, I would argue, always leads to the redefining of the law. But grace, guys, grace, on the other hand, requires much more than just a list of do's and don'ts. Grace requires the right motives, the right heart. The beauty of grace living is that we can look back at the law and we can say, what was God's heart? in that law. And that's what's required of us in grace living. So the law, I would say, is hard in the sense that we cannot earn our way into God's presence by simply living out the law. But if the goal is not to, is not to get into God's presence, but is to make ourselves feel good about being in God's presence, then yeah, certainly, we can all make a list of things that we can accomplish in order to make ourselves feel good. 
But if we understand that we cannot ultimately, and, and the goal, if, and, if we cannot ultimately earn our way into God's presence. <clears throat> and if we also understand that it's not ultimately about us feeling good about ourselves, but it's about honoring God, then we will then understand that grace is the only way. Now the danger is that given to our own sinful hearts, we will always gravitate toward justifying ourselves by the law. And more often than not, therefore redefining the law so it matches our desires and plans. It's much easier this way, right? It's much easier. It's kind of like being like a, a, a worker person. Uh, that's what we say in our household. That's a worker man. Uh, and then being a boss, right? Oh, the boss gets to define all the rules, right? He gets to, he gets to choose what time we come in and what time we stop. It's kind of like being, like, like, it's kind of like being self-employed, right? You get to set your own hours. You get to kind of set your own pace. You get to, right? Like, like we all want to define the rules. It's much easier that way in some ways. That, it, uh, don't take that too far. But when we get to define the law, that which would earn us into God's presence, if we get to define that, then that would be simply much easier. As a result, so if this is the way our hearts will tend to gravitate towards, and I want you to see this rooted at the very beginning of humanity. It's why I read Genesis 3. As a result, legalism will always be a temptation in your heart and in my heart. Choosing the way of the law will always be a temptation in your heart. I would put money that there is not a single person in this room that does not struggle with legalism on a daily basis. It's all going to to look different. It's going to be in different ways. It's going to be to different extents. We're all at different points in our journey and sanctification, but it's all, all of us, it's going to be present there. Why? Because it's rooted in the fall. It is mankind's problem. We want to be God, and the only way for us to be God is to earn our way to being God via the law, and the only way for us then to feel good about such things is for us to redefine what that law is and what it means to be God, ultimately. This is what was going on in 1 Timothy. Particularly what Paul is referring to here in the first seven verses. There were false teachers teaching that rightfulness with God could be earned through simply obeying the law. They even went a step further, and I think what they were teaching was that those who were right via the law were the only ones who were acceptable in receiving Jesus Christ. So it was like, I have to make, I have to justify myself, I have to be right myself, and then I can add Jesus to that mix. And the only people who were worthy of Jesus were those who were already living by the law. Fancy way of saying, I've got to clean myself up and then Jesus can take me. Many of us do that probably on a daily basis. I must make myself right then Jesus will have me back. Let me remind you, the prodigal son lost everything, and his father took him back. So they had to make themselves right. What's being taught here, they had to make themselves right before Jesus could come in. Let me just begin with this question, and I, and I want this to be the question that permeates all of what we talk about today, and I want you to write down this question because I want you to ask it this week, I want you to ask it every day, and that is this, where do I struggle with legalism in my life? Where? It's not a matter of do I, it's a matter of where. And I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but there should be multiple answers to that, okay? Where? Not if, where? Where? I'm going to expand that a little bit. Where do, you, where do you try to earn your standing before God? 
Where do you try to earn your standing before God? Where do you try to make things right so that God will have you back? Maybe another kind of follow-up question to help us think through this this week is, where do people have to act right in order to have right standing with you? How do people have to act in order to have right standing with you? Do they have to act a certain way? Do they have to treat you a certain way? Now, now in that thought, I would ask you to, I would encourage you to ask this question. For whose glory do you want them to act that way? Is it for your glory or is it for God's glory? <laughs> or do you try to do a mixture of the both and, and call that spiritual? How many of those standards that, that you are setting are set by the Scriptures? And how many have you defined? And j- just for quick thought here, how, how does that person stand before God? So, because uh, here's the deal, if <clears throat> where we tend to make other people line up to our legalism is probably the same way we try to earn our way into God's presence via our legalism. So if you, just a quick, and particularly if you're a parent, Right? Just look, where do you make your child earn their way into your presence? Where do you make them earn their way into right standing with you? Now, admittedly, like, like for me, that's, that's probably not, like with my kids, it's not a, like that's not the general operation in my household. Like that's not the general operation in my heart. But there is definitely evidences here and there and here and there where I am acting as though you must earn your way into my presence. So the reason I'm saying that is to say it may not be the, the overarching and overruling part of your household where your kids must earn their way into your presence, but you will see pieces of it here and there. And my point is, is, is even whether it's with kids or with other people, where you are making other people have to earn their way into your presence via legalism, you're probably doing the same thing between you and God. So just ask this question this week. Where do you struggle with legalism in your life? Maybe, maybe you're always beating yourself up. Chances are if you beat yourself up because of legalism, you probably do the same thing to other people. Again, just an indicator. Are you doing this? Just trying to help you think through, where am I being legalistic in my life? All of that to set the stage for these seven verses that we'll walk through very quickly here. This gets us to one of the problems in Ephesus. The law was being worshipped, and in the process, the people and their legalism started beating other people up. This is what's going on here at the very beginning. They chose the way of legalism, and in the process, pain and beating began. Not physically, but basically, that's what's going on. So Paul says to Timothy these words, beware of false teachers. He says, beware of false teachers. And I added by implication, especially the one in your own heart, beware of false teachers, especially the one in your own heart. Right, let's work through this. There were people teaching false doctrines in the church of Ephesus. And Paul tells Timothy he must address these things. Look at verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now the different doctrine that they're teaching is everything that we've been talking about thus far. That's why I gave you all of that stage setting there that we just did on legalism and earning our way into God's presence. That was the different doctrine that was being taught. And then in chapter 6, verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Again, Paul is telling Timothy, you must address this issue. 
Now, not only was there false doctrines, but kind of wrapped up in all of that mess was the idea of myths and endless genealogies. Let's talk about that for just a quick second. 1 Timothy 1.4a says, Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. What were myths, just very briefly, were mere speculation based on anecdotes, rumor, or imagination without any secure footing in the truth. I am very scared when people start saying, well, I'm just kind of musing over this idea. And my question is this, is it rooted in the truth? Or is it just a fanciful idea? What about genealogies? You know, understanding what's going on, I think perhaps... What they were doing was comparing a stream of tradition that they belonged to in order to assess whether they were really in or not. I'm part of this bloodline, and that must mean I'm in and I'm right. I'm part of this bloodline, then I'm not. You're not. I don't want to push that too far, but I think we do something similar to that. This is my theological tradition of my family, so that makes me right and these people wrong. What was going on, though, is that these myths that they were speculating about that were not rooted in uh, any secure footing in the truth, and these, all this thinking, what was leading this to, Paul says, was false knowledge. False knowledge. Let me read you 1 Timothy 6.20. It says, O Timothy, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. This was not financial deposit. It was the gospel that was deposited and entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. They have thought through these things. They are high and lofty in their knowledge. And he says that it is false knowledge. Now, before we get too hung up on what were they teaching and, and what's these myths and genealogies and, and all that, we can, we can speculate about what all those things were. We don't know. We just know Paul calls it false knowledge. The most important thing for us to realize at this point is that the false teacher's understanding of the law and the things that they were talking about and the myths and genealogies had descended them into legalism. We know that for sure. We may not know all the details of everything that they were discussing, but we know that it resulted in a dissension into legalism. Let me give you an example. We have an example right here in chapter 4, verse 3. It says, Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What he's saying is evidence of someone who believes and know the truth is someone who, who does not marry and someone who, who practices abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Here they are redefining the law. Now you can go back and read chapter 4 later. But this is a man-defined law in order to make one right with God. So abstain from marriage and abstain from certain foods. That Paul says, otherwise God has created to be received with thanksgiving. It's interesting. Sounds like a certain church in our culture today that would require the abstinence of marriage. That's a man-made law. You can figure out for yourself which church does not let their pastors, priests get married. It's a man-made law. Not necessarily anything wrong with that. But it's a man-made law. Now the issue here is that this man-made law, what makes this law wrong is when it is being used to make one right with God. So a modern, let me give you a modern example. As long as I'm in church every Sunday, then I will receive favor from God. Right? That's, that would be a man-made law that a lot of us probably grew up believing. As long as I'm in church every Sunday, as long as I'm there when the doors are open, Right? then I will be right with God. I will receive favor with God. That's your law, not God's. Okay? 
Grace says, just for kicks and giggles, for just a second, Grace would say, though, your heart should want to be in church and gathering with the saints every chance you get. Now, what's easier? Just to go to church and check off your box? Or to pray that God would change your heart so that it desires to be with God's people every chance it gets? Who gets the credit? You can just show up, right? And I can earn my way into God's presence, right? Which still ultimately means I can feel good about myself. But if God's the only one who can change your heart, then who gets credit for that? God does. You don't get any credit for that. Who gets to be God then? God. Who doesn't get to be God? Me. All right, good. I think this might go without saying, but in each of our hearts lives a little Pharisee, right? You're just kind of walking around. Here's a checkbox, here's a checkbox, here's a checkbox. Right. But that's a modern example, I think, of, of, of a law that we've created in our own hearts to make us, to make us right before God. So Baptists are another modern example. This is probably further removed from many of us, but would be the idea of not drinking alcohol. This is, this is what makes someone holy, right? Wearing suits on Sunday. Now, those are far-fetched, I think, for, for many of us, but maybe some of that's been in our past. But, but I want you to think through today. What is a modern example of a law that I've created in my heart today? Right? Where am I being legalistic today? And if you're going to be a leader Paul doesn't tell Timothy, and he doesn't tell you to just be careful with those things. What does he say in verse one, or chapter one, verse three? He tells him to command these people, to 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 charge them not to teach these things. How do you think we should respond to the legalism that's in our hearts, to the laws that we've created in our hearts? Just to be careful. No, Paul would say, "I charge you." Don't teach those things. Don't teach them to yourself. Don't keep them in your heart because they will come out. You will teach those to other people. He tells them in 620, he tells them to guard what's been entrusted to him. Do you understand that the gospel of grace that resides in your heart if you're redeemed is a deposit that must be guarded? It is a deposit in this church that must be guarded. The fact that Jesus died on the cross and by faith, or uh, by grace through faith, we can be right with God by His doing, not ours, that must be guarded. It must be guarded here, and it must be guarded, and that begins with the guarding of that in your heart. I want you to see that Paul tells Timothy that there is action required. We can't be passive. You will find yourself a lost legalistic Pharisee if you do not guard the deposit that is in your heart. Now Christian, the question is, are you fighting against legalism in your own heart and in your home? If we're all called to be leaders in, in certain capacities, how are we guarding the deposit that's been entrusted? How are you fighting against legalism in your own heart and in your home? The gospel says, guys, let me remind us just quickly. The gospel says that you are already justified before the Father. Stop trying to justify yourself. You're already justified. I was super encouraged. I was in a situation not too long ago where the urge to justify myself before this other person was great. And sometimes we do have to explain why things happen, so on and so forth. But we have to live by the truth that we are already justified before the Father. The gospel would also tell us to stop making other people earn your favor by the legalism that you've created and understand that they stand before you the blood of Jesus. How does that, what does that practically look like? Do you know how many times relationships get broken because of our law that we created? Like, I've created this law, and you don't measure up to this law, and so now we can't be in friendship together. Is that godly? You hurt my feelings, so we can't be friends? Is that godly? Is counseling with a brother 
not too long ago, who had had a plan, who, who was, was in this relationship uh, with, this, with this other brother. These are people that are outside of our church. <clears throat> and the, the one brother basically changed plans in such a way that it impacted the other brother. And the other brother was very upset about these plans that got drastically changed. And as I was counseling with the brother who was upset, he says these words to me. He goes, where I got upset most was that in my mind, I had a sovereign plan for my brother over here. I had a plan for him as if I was God. And God has showed me that God has a different plan. And that's the plan that's going to happen. I just wanted to be God in my own heart. I had established that plan equals law. I had established law for him, a plan for him, and it wasn't God's plan. And so when he didn't match my plan, it broke our relationship. So, so my question, I think that gives us a good illustration for our own hearts and, and, and us as a church. Like when someone doesn't meet our plan, our expectations, our what. How do we deal with that? Is it, well, we can't be together? We can't be friends? Or do you view that brother or sister as someone who stands before God as justified? Because here's the reality. If they can't stand before you as justified, but they stand before God as justified, who are you saying you are in light of, in relationship to who God is? You're saying you're above God. And the gospel says that we all stand unworthy before the throne based upon our own doing, but totally worthy based upon the work of Jesus. So, not only does Paul tell us to watch out for false teachers, but he also shows where legalism leads to. This is important for us, right? A lot of times we don't heed the words of God because we don't understand the weightiness of what's at stake. But he says to look where false teaching concerning legalism leads. That's what Paul helps us to do here in the beginning of 1 Timothy. First of all, legalism leads to controversy. It leads to controversy. Many of us have been a part of churches that are just filled with controversy. And I would put a lot of money on it that a lot of them were caused by legalism. 1 Timothy 1.4 says, Nor devote themselves to myths and genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God as by faith. What's happening is there's these speculations and there's disagreements that's growing and there's a friction that's beginning to grow. In chapter 6, verse 3 through 5, it says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is what? Puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for what? Controversies and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there's a whole lot. We'll unpack that verse much more fully in like four months. Uh, but for now, he calls their talking and their controversy, he calls them meaningless talk and irreverent babble. That's what irreverent babble, that's what Paul calls it. Look at First Timothy 1 verse 6. He says, certain persons, by swerving from these, what is these? It's, it's the good deposit, the gospel. By swerving from grace living, we have wandered away into a vain discussion. Chapter 6 verse 20, back to chapter 6. It says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. You see, there was much talk, but the body was not moving forward. What do you mean by moving forward, Matt? What I mean by moving forward is that it's like the engine was running at full throttle, but without being in gear. You ever done that? Your engine's going to like explode? You ever like went to take off and you forgot that it was in park and... Where's the, where's the car go? Nowhere. 
But there's a lot of commotion going on, isn't there? And what eventually will happen to that engine? There's the the energy's not going anywhere, right? It's all right there, and it's gonna eventually that engine will go. I mean, you run that thing at full throttle, and it's not going anywhere. That engine's gonna go somewhere. <laughs> it's gonna go kaboom, right? It's the same thing. What's going on here is there's lots of talk going on. There's lots of lots of discussion going on, but the body's not being moved forward. I would say a good test to whether our discussions in this body are irreverent, irre, yeah, irreverent babble or God-honoring communication is whether or not it moves the body on toward the gospel. Here, it hindered even moving towards the gospel. As in the body of Christ where legalism, where my standards, my laws that I've created, when that becomes an idol, there will come great quarrels and great fighting. And we are not above this happening just because we don't wear suits to church on Sunday, just because we meet in homes and we don't keep people from drinking delicious alcohol. We are not above this. We just have law. We have laws. They just look differently. Our law might be you must drink alcohol or you're not as good as me. Right? That could be a law too. I'm better than you because I experienced the freedom of that. Right? It's just a law. It's just on the other side. Oh, we're better than you because we're not a traditional church and we don't sing traditional music like that, right? That's law. It's just coming from the opposite direction. It's just as evil. It's just as dishonoring to God. Now, why does it lead to great quarrels and fighting? The reason is because legalism will never stop with just your relationship between you and the Father. Your relationship between you and the Father is always displayed between you and your relationship with other people. Right? Just like we, well, I'll just move on. Our legalism, your legalism will overtake your relationships with other people. Just like having to earn your way into God's presence, others will have to earn their way into your presence. Just like you setting your own standards so you can be successful, you will set the standards for everyone else. Then comes strife, evil suspicions, lack of grace, impatience. And at the end of the day, many times this will lead to some people even wandering from the faith. And that's what he says has happened here. There are people that have wandered from the faith. They have shipwrecked their faith. First Timothy 1, verse 18 through 19 says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Chapter 6, verse 20 through 21. We've read part of this already. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have what? Swerved from the faith. Here's the question, guys. Do we understand what's at stake with our legalism? What's at stake with our legalism? The danger here is not that we would just live a less than satisfactory life. That we just wouldn't be as impactful of a Christian for the kingdom, although that's true too. That's not the ultimate danger here. The danger in our legalism is hell. They've shipwrecked their faith. They have swerved from their faith. They have abandoned the faith is the idea here. We need to see the danger in our own hearts is that we can wander off into legalism and shipwreck our faith. Now here's, here's the danger, here's the thing, guys. This is what we have to think about. <clears throat> when we tend to think of legalism, we tend to think of 
a law that just makes us look super spiritual. But what if our legalism is a law that makes us look unspiritual, but in our minds makes us feel good about our standing before God? There's nothing that says legalism is necessarily laws that are loftier and higher than God's laws. I mean, that's a facade anyways, that we can have laws that are higher and loftier than God's. But we tend to think, so, and I just want us to be, a, like the danger here is not that we would, that legalism, like it, it's not necessarily going to look, this is what I'm trying to say, it's not necessarily going to look in your life like you're just super spiritual and more spiritual than everyone else. You might look like a fool to those who are spiritually and following Jesus Christ. You may not look like a nice, clean Pharisee. Remember, we can redefine the law. That's what it's going to gravitate towards. So maybe your redefining the law is just to justify your sin. That everyone else goes, yeah, that's obvious. Here he says they've shipwrecked their faith. There is something that's become more valuable than the deposit of the gospel in their lives. How often does that happen to us? And it doesn't necessarily happen by us choosing to look high and loftier and more spiritual and and more grander than anybody else who's following Jesus. It might just be to justify our sin. We need to see that the danger in our own hearts is that we could wander off into legalism which would lead us away from our faith. Another example would be how often do you find yourself justifying yourself in order to serve yourself? How often are we justifying our sin? Or making, I'm making a, uh, excuses for our sin, right? Like, I've got this and this makes us okay or this makes it okay for now and all that is is you're just redefining the law, right? Anytime we say that my sin is okay or it's okay for a season, it's just you taking God's law and going, yeah, I don't like that there, cross, I'll rewrite it this way. We're justifying ourselves. So, all that to say this, what is the solution? What does Paul say is the solution to this problem? How do we fight against legalism? How do we protect against legalism? And Paul would say this, steer straight, steer a straight course to the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Steer a straight course. Fight. It's going to be upstream. And sometimes you may feel like you don't have a paddle. Right? Anybody feel like they're going upstream and they don't have a paddle? I, I feel that way sometimes too. Often. As a leader, I feel like sometimes we're going upstream and we're all in the same boat and we don't have any paddles, you know? Or <laughs> you know? So what should we do? We should refocus on the gospel. Refocus on the gospel. It don't just mean us as a church corporately, but each of us individually, every day, refocus on the gospel. <clears throat> now legalism would say you need to get up and have a devotion every single morning or else you're not going to be right with God for that day, Right? That's another example of a law that's wonderful that we've created. But there is some practicality to getting up every morning and reminding yourself to refocus on the gospel. I need to focus on the gospel today. Gospel of grace today. It's mine, not because of what I've done, because of Jesus. It's a new day that God's given to me through the gospel of grace. The gospel brings salvation and hope. First Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus our, what? Our hope. He's our hope. Hope that we can be right before God, not because of our doing, but because of Christ's doing. Lots of hope. Hope that we can one day dwell with God. Hope that one day all of our sin that would so entangles our hearts will be ripped away and will be set free to enjoy Him forever. Hope that all the pain and brokenness of this life will be ours someday. So the gospel brings salvation and hope. The gospel also delivers grace, mercy, and peace. He says in verse 2 to Timothy, My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it grace, mercy, and peace because of the law? Is it from the law? No, it's from the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. 
He's implying our redemption. And because of our redemption, we have grace, mercy, and peace from God. Our Lord. If you've not been redeemed, He's not your Lord. So we've received grace, peace, and mercy from God so we can live at peace with others and show grace and mercy to others. When we don't show grace, we don't show mercy, we don't live at peace with others, we're just living by our own law, and we don't understand the grace, mercy, and peace that's ours in God through Jesus Christ. But the gospel, guys, the gospel delivers grace, mercy, and peace. The gospel brings salvation, hope, gospel delivers grace, mercy, and peace. Guys, God's work is promoted not by arguments, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel, the kingdom of God moves forward, not because of our debates or our wonderful discussions, but because of increased faith in Jesus Christ. That's how the gospel work is moved forward in the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1.4, in order to devote themselves to myths, English genealogies, which promote what? Speculations, rather than what? Stewardship from God that is by faith. When we think of rebuke in this body or exhortation, admonishment in this body, our concern should never, ever, ever be for just the external. That would be legalism. It should always, always, always be for the faith in Jesus Christ, the increase of faith in Jesus Christ of our brother or sister. Because that's what's at stake. It should always, always be that. Guys, all sin, all sin, which would necessitate all rebuke or all exhortation, so on and so forth, all sin comes down to whether we are placing our faith in Jesus or we are placing our faith in our law the law that we want to be obedient to so i've recreated this law i've I've created the law for instance that that uh, that i can be happy if i continue to look at this that i should not look at or if i continue to treat people this way in a way that i shouldn't i can find happiness in that or i can find happiness if people will just treat me a certain way and that'll make me feel good that is our law that we're creating and that comes down to, are you placing your faith in your law that you've created, or are you placing your faith in the law of God, and placing your faith, ultimately, not in the law of God, sorry, in the, placing your faith in Jesus Christ, not the law, and certainly not your law. So that's why all, if all sin comes down to whether we're placing our faith in Jesus, or we're placing our faith in ourselves, that's why every time, we talk about encouraging each other through sin. It should never be, it should never stop. And I would argue it should never start with the external. It should always start with the heart and whether it's placing its faith in Jesus Christ or our brother, for our brothers and for our sisters. The next thing I think we see here is that salvation will not come through greater obedience to the law or superior knowledge, but only through ongoing trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Salvation will not come through greater obedience to the law or superior knowledge, but only through ongoing trust and faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. Right? Paul will go on, and I'm kind of jealous because I don't get to preach these passages, Rusty will, but Paul in the next few verses will demonstrate this from his own experience. He will demonstrate. I mean, think about Paul. Paul's got all the knowledge in the world. He's got all the obedience in the world, like better than most of us will ever get to. But he says that it's only through his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that his salvation comes. As we must trumpet this in the world, this idea that salvation only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We trumpet this not only in the world, not only in Haiti, in the Dominican Republic, but we trumpet this in our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own houses, in our own marriages, in our own parenting, in our own relationships at work.
How do we preach the centrality of faith in Christ to each other daily? A lot of that's what we're learning in DNA, guys. We're learning how to push each other to increased faith in Jesus Christ and decreased faith in everything else. That's what we want to see happen. That's our heart's desire. Our desire is not that you would just go through some program called DNA. It's that your faith in Jesus would be increased. We must see sin as fundamentally a gospel issue. And a gospel issue is a heart issue. And a heart issue is a faith issue. Where am I placing my faith? Jesus or my law? Alright, so realize... So we're talking about refocusing on the gospel. What else must we do if we're going to steer a course straight ahead to the gospel of Jesus Christ? We must also refocus on godliness. Godliness. See, see, this is where when we talk about the gospel of grace, like we tend to stop right there. But there's also a refocus on godliness that must come as well. And I think that's the danger of the conversation that's going on right now in our culture and church culture about it's grace, 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 grace would be that age-old warning of so should we just keep on sending so that grace may abound? Whoa, 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 whoa. There's also a refocus on godliness. Look at 1 Timothy verse 5. It says the aim of our charge is that love would kind of overlook everything that I've done and would overlook our quarrel. No, no, what's he say? He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Guys, Paul's, Paul's goal is not just to fight the false teachers. It's not just, Timothy, go fight the false teachers. But, to, but his goal is to see God's work actively promoted in the lives of the believers. He wants to see the believers living in relationship with each other just like they should be living in relationship with God. He says, the goal of our aim is love. Is it just love, just blanket love? It's just love for the world and love? No, no, no. It's love for each other. It's love within the body. It's love for brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly in this church called Ephesus. It'd be the same thing for us. The goal here is for us to have love. Instead of arguments and squabbles and, and disagreements over the law because we've created law. Now, now I get this. Like We're not thinking, I, I don't want you to limit your thinking to just, Oh, we get together and have a big business meeting and fight about it, right? Because we don't have that. And if we think that that's all there is to the squabbles and fighting is that we'd all come together in a big group and have a big fight about it and then go home. And if as long as we don't have that, then we're okay. That's not the, like, that's not the point here. The issue is, are you living by law in your own life with this person over here or this person over here and therefore killing love that should be flowing to and from in that relationship? Whether that's with your spouse, with your kids, with your Another brother or sister in the body. So how do we achieve such loving relationships? This is where we talk about the refocusing on godliness. How do we re- achieve such loving relationships? He says a pure heart. What, is it, what does he mean by pure heart? It's avoiding the pollution of the world and the behavior that's not Christ-like. We have a pure heart. We avoid polluting that heart. We avoid the pollution that then would spew out of our hearts. He says a good conscience. That's how we achieve such loving relationships, a good good conscience. Being able to stand before Christ in contrast to those who have acted in such a way that their consciences have become seared and as a consequence were unable to discern God's ways. Do we understand that that can happen? Now we our conscience can be so become so seared that we can't discern God's ways. But a good conscience can discern God's ways. And being able to stand before Christ in that. And then he says a sincere faith. This is three things of how we achieve such a loving relationship. Sincere faith. Through a genuine, ongoing, loving trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in contrast to those who have abandoned the faith. So how are we going to live? in relationship with each other in such a way that our goal and our aim and it is displayed that it is love. Pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Genuine, ongoing, loving trust in the Lord Jesus Christ instead of those who have abandoned the faith. 
So I would say there are two foundations of the church here. Number one, the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ received by faith in Him. Foundation one. The glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ received by faith in Him. By grace through faith in Him. Second foundation, two, the response of godliness revealed in love. The response of godliness revealed in love. What I mean by that? means that the response to the redemption by grace is going to be godliness. It's not godliness to earn my redemption. It's godliness in response to my redemption. And that godliness, as a foundation to the church, is revealed in love. Alright, so let's wrap this up. Adam and Eve choose the law. Why? They could define it. They could achieve it. The gospel of grace says we can never live by God's law, but who did? Jesus did, right? Jesus did. Amen. So stop. The gospel of grace says stop trying to justify yourself and live in the joy of justification that comes from Jesus Christ. Do, you know, do we know how much freedom there is and how much joy there is? to understand that I don't have to earn my way into God's favor. It's mine through Jesus. Right? Then that frees me up to enjoy living out godliness. Because I don't have, the godliness, the living out godliness doesn't have to bear the weight of my redemption. Jesus bore the weight of my redemption. So I am free to live out the way he has called me to live out. And I don't have to do that, keeping track of everything to make sure that I'm, I'm making my way into God's presence instead. I'm able to go, ah, I'm in God's presence because of Jesus' work. Now let me live in the freedom that comes from grace. Then it becomes, all right, God, change my heart here. God, change my heart here. God, help me work here. Change my desire here. Gospel of grace says we can't do it, but Jesus did, so stop trying to do it. The gospel of grace also says your desire to love and live in the law not for justification, but for God's glory, is, an indic is indicative of whether or not your heart has been redeemed by the gospel of grace. So the idea that we can, if, if my justification is found, and I'm finding that every day in Jesus Christ, then I can look at the law and delight in the law. So that's where we can read Psalm 19, and it talks about the law of the Lord is good. The law of the Lord is bad if you're doing it trying to earn your way into God's presence, but the law of the Lord is delightful if you're doing it as an outworking of your freedom in Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't have to bear the weight of your redemption. It could never bear the weight of your redemption. The law cannot redeem you. It didn't redeem them in the Old Testament. It was through the future work of Jesus Christ that those in the Old Testament that were redeemed. It was their faith that was displayed in following the law. But it was their faith that saved them, not the law. But today, I just want to remind us that our love for the law and our, uh, our desire to live for the law, the law is a good thing. He will go on in verse 8. The very next verse is this. Now we know that the law is good. We know that the law is good, and then he goes on, if one uses it lawfully. See, I know in the church the law is bad, the law is bad, the law is bad, right? Paul just says to Timothy, we know that the law is good if it's used lawfully. I'm, again, I'm jealous Rusty gets to preach that next week. I will be in Haiti. Last couple questions. Are you in sin right now that you've justified to yourself? We need to ask this question. If you have to justify it, then you are saying you don't want Jesus' justification. And you probably should stop. On the other hand, on the other hand, hear me say these last few words. If you experience conviction, repentance, and reassurance of Jesus' justifying work. Like you should be experiencing that every day. If we stop, 
preaching our own justification to ourselves, maybe then we could begin to experience the justification of Jesus Christ and be reminded of that every day. If that's happening, rest, child of God. Do you hear me? Rest, child of God. You, rest. Experience the conviction. Experience the repentance. Experience the reassurance of Jesus' justifying work. Rest. Enjoy the Father's grace, mercy, peace, and hope. You understand, the more you experience and know the justifying work of Jesus Christ and the subsequent grace, mercy, peace, and hope that comes from that, that the more grace, mercy, peace, and hope the people around you will experience too. You want to lead someone to the gospel? Then live in light of the gospel. Live in light of the grace, mercy, and peace that's been given to you by the justifying work of Jesus. Just stop trying to justify yourself. Stop trying to make your own law. Live, live in the freedom of the gospel. The other people will see that. That is something that is out of this world, right? Because it's not a part of this kingdom. It's a part of God's kingdom. It doesn't fit here. So when someone sees something that incredible that doesn't fit here, they're going to notice that. So enjoy the Father's grace, mercy, peace, and hope that He has given you in and through our Lord Jesus Christ that is yours and mine by faith in Him alone. Pray for us and then we'll worship. And I pray that God would set you free from any legalism that that is intertwined inside of your heart and begin chiseling away at that this week. Or continue chiseling away at that this week. <clears throat> Let me pray for us and we'll worship and then we'll be done. Father, thank you for your words this morning. Father, thank you that we have the gospel of grace. Father, you're so kind. We don't deserve the gospel of grace, but Father, you have so graciously given it to us. But that's the beauty of it. If there was a hint of deservingness in our hearts, then, then there would always be the proneness to worship our hearts. But Father, that's the beauty, is that we get to stand before you not bearing the weight of our redemption because our Savior bore the weight of our redemption. Father, let us enjoy that. Father, we don't have to justify ourselves to come into your presence. You did it for us. Father, help us to enjoy the freedom of that. Then we can look at the law rightfully and use it rightfully. Because your law is good. Your words are good. It is good for us to obey the law. It is good for us. It serves us well. And it serves your kingdom well. But it is totally counterproductive when we use the law as a means to justify ourselves. So Father, let us delight in your gospel of grace and then live the godly lives that you've called us to live in light of that truth and as a result of your redeeming work in our hearts. So, Father, we offer up these praises to you in these next few moments. Father, let them be a delight to your ears. And, Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand?